what a wonderful occasion to be here to celebrate Women's Month with so many powerful, beautiful women and so many wonderful men. <laughs> because I'm a mother of two sons, so I want to make sure that men don't feel marginal. Because life would be extremely boring if we didn't have men and women together. Yeah. I have to confess that when I was asked to come to this occasion to talk about beauty is king, I said, what? In my whole busy life, why should I go and spend time on this? But having spent the morning listening to the ABLE panel, I understand why the topic is topical. And so my take on beauty is that the most enduring beauty is the beauty that shines through from what's inside. And we all have a light shining inside us. And it's when we allow that light to shine through that we are at our most glowing beauty. But I also want to talk a little bit about why I believe that our country has failed to reach its great potential because it has ignored the feminine in the word power. And then I want to address what has come up this morning several times. Oh, what's wrong with women? You know, women don't support one another. It's called the psychology of the oppressed. And if we don't understand it, we're going to beat us ourselves up even more than we beat up. So let's start with women as a source of feminine power. There's actually a little book which I would recommend to all of you. It's called The Athenian Doctrine. And this is written by two men who, in the aftermath of the global financial meltdown, started looking at what makes for enduring institutions, what makes for sustainability in development, what kind of leaders are those who lead enduring institutions and make them thrive. You know, the most enduring institution is the family. And it is a thriving institution because it's multi-generational. Now, who is in charge of this institution? And if you start thinking in those terms, these are the men, I'm not that's not me saying that. These are these two men doing this analysis. And then they went and looked at businesses led by women versus businesses led by men, and they came to one simple conclusion. The global financial meltdown was all about too much testosterone. <laughs> because it is the ego that says, I'm going to have a faster, bigger stock, whatever performance than you, rather than how do we manage 
to grow our economy so that they are sustainable, not just for this generation, but for the next generation. Now, one thing about the physiology that makes us mothers as women is that you have to be future orientated. Otherwise, how do you spend nine months carrying something that you don't know? Uh, you have to have real faith in the future to be a woman, to be a mother, and, and so on. So some of the feminine strengths that are often missing in societies that are not inclusive societies, that are discriminatory societies, that are abusive, are the following. Women as co-creators of life have to be nurtured. I mean, you, the breast milk doesn't flow unless the mindset is saying, I'm ready to nurture, to embrace, etc. The empathy that comes with, you can literally hear your child cry even before they start crying because you anticipate people's needs and so on. The compassion that you have, it's not that you have to do this, but you really are, you feel happier when you see other people being happy. And women are great collaborators, not necessarily because they can't do it all, but they know, they're smart enough to know that collaborative efforts produce greater results and more sustainable results. And of course, there is the issue of connectors. How many of us don't come from large extended families where the level of connection those mamas and tannies and grannies do is incredible. And they can mount a party like no caterer can mount because they know who knows what to do what best. Now why is it that when we talk about governance in societies, in regions, in continents, in the world, we don't think about these very critical skills, these very critical attributes that makes for sustainable, thriving enterprises. This booklet shows how in uh, Iceland, after the meltdown, they decided no more traditional politicians, and they went and looked for people with these attributes. And they elected them into office. And they made sure that they put the citizens at the center of decision making rather than the people on whatever streets. It could be Wall Street, it could be uh, other streets in other countries. But our underestimation of the power of the feminine, which is in men and women, incidentally, just that men suppress it. Uh, is really something that we need to celebrate. During this Women's Month, we shouldn't just be celebrating women, we should be celebrating what women bring to leadership, what women bring to sustainability, what women bring to a world which we can all feel proud to be members of. And it is in this context
that I want us to look at our own country and ask the question, what's missing? How is it possible that after 20 years of a democracy that so many fought and died for, so many struggled and ended up crippled by, so many lost friends and dedicated themselves to. And when you look at it, it isn't lack of a constitutional framework that works. We have the best. We have human rights embedded in it. We've got uh, not just human rights in the UN sense, but also socioeconomic rights. We've got gender equality embedded in it. We've got the centrality of citizens embedded in it, because ours is not a parliamentary democracy. It's a constitutional democracy, which means you and I are the sovereigns, not that leader in that place. You, you are the most important person in this democracy. So the question is, what is missing to make us the great society that I believe we have the potential to become. When I look at it, I come to one conclusion. We underestimated what it would mean to do away with the ugliness of apartheid and to welcome the beauty of a constitutional democracy. It's like trying to put makeup on a face and a body that has not been washed. In 1994, we didn't stop and say, and I'm talking in the presence of uh, plastic surgeons, and we heard about the body rejects dead skin. We didn't remove the dirt, dead skin in our body our psychological body as a South African. We move from saying that white people are superior, black people are inferior, women are inferior, men are superior, to embracing equality. How were people going to work to engage now as equal citizens without any any orientation, I mean, even at universities, I know our universities sometimes have got big faults, but for God's sake, at least when you arrive there, there is orientation week. Did we have an orientation week or month in 1994? The other thing which we neglected was to acknowledge that besides the orientation process, we've got to recognize that we walk into this new dispensation with scars, with wounds that need to be tender. <laughs> and we can't just simply pretend they don't exist. How do you expect us as a society that had lived our separate lives to suddenly live together happily ever after without any enabling process? Even for a panel as educated as this, you need a facility. We didn't do that. We attempted through the TRC to do a little bit of it. But you know what? We did we put band-aid here and there and said, you go away now, you're going to feel nice. 
the real work we should have done was to look at the impact of socio-economic inequity. It wasn't just inequality. This was a deliberate design that black people would be poor and people who are designated white should have all the opportunities. And of course, even within that, if you're Afrikaner, then the brooders made sure you take, because the English had taken care of their own before. So how did we imagine that we're going to walk into this constitutional democracy of equality in terms of gender, in terms of racial uh, categories, in terms of urban and rural, without talking about it. You know, one of the wonderful things about my upbringing is that I grew up in rural Limpopo. Whenever something is to happen, people sit in a circle and talk about, okay, what do we want to do? How are you going to, who's going to do what, etc. I don't think we allowed ourselves enough time to do that work of thinking about how we're going to. Yes, we negotiated and we tried to be as, get as much out of it as possible, but having whatever it is we negotiated, we should have sat down and said, now that we have agreed, what are we going to be doing? And so to ask the question about what's wrong with women is to ask the question what's wrong with our society. Because women, there's nothing inherently wrong with women. There's nothing that makes them not support other women. When you grow up in a society of layers, and you are at the bottom of that drama, you're going to try and get as much as possible to get onto somebody's head so that you get to the top. And that's what happens when we haven't done the work of liberating this thing. I was fortunate to grow, to cut my political teeth in the Black Consciousness Movement. And there we worked through the reason, why do we accept being called non-whites? You know, you, you guys have forgotten this. We were called non-Europeans here in Africa, right? And we accepted it. If you look at the old ANC literature, even the unity movement, the non-European people of South Africa demand export. Hello. How do you demand anything when you first of all embrace being the negative of somebody? Okay? And so we were, my generation had the opportunity to work through the psychology of the oppressed and to liberate our minds from this looking at yourself in the negative and fell in love with ourselves. Are we in love? Boy. Every day I wake up, I say, girl, you are now 65, but look at you. Great. Right? But that is because I was fortunate to be at that time in that era. We need to create the spaces, not necessarily a black consciousness, but a consciousness space for all South Africans. Because white South Africans have work to do. Many of them say, you know, why we have these problems with the squatters is because, you know, black people just have children, have children. Of course not you, not, you are not like them. <laughs> the issue is that for many 
who are unconscious. They imagine that white people have what they have because they are smarter than black people, they work harder, and they have fewer children. Now, that might well be true, but what's the source? What's the reason? Where did we start? And so unless we talk about these things, we're going to end up chasing our tail all the time. And then you have the issue of accusing white people of being racist and white people of accusing black people of being racist. It's all uh, hamors, right? And that's why the universities, going back to my whole stomping ground, uh, have a lot of work to do. I feel appalled that in 2013 we still, what's your race? There is no such thing as a race. There's one race, the human race. What's this race story? This is so ignorant. Right? But it's there in the application forms in many universities. And the idea is we want to have a basis for dealing with the legacy of the past. If we had approached it in a way that liberated the mind, by now it will be very difficult to worry about it. Of course we will have to worry about rural children because they do have less uh, opportunity. We should worry about children living on the periphery of cities. We should worry about poor people. And the majority of poor people are black people. So there's no question that we need to take affirmative actions, not in the narrow sense, but we need to take the actions to correct that which went wrong in the past. Now, that's with regard to the issue of black, white, and the legacy. The same applies to women. We have today a parliament with more women than any other parliament except for Rwanda in Africa. We have more women in uh, cabinet than any other except Rwanda and the Scandinavian countries. But we've got a pandemic of gender-based violence in this society. Why? Because we didn't do the work that enable men to live with strong women, and for strong women to bring up strong men, and for women to stand up. I also am fortunate being a product of a very large extended family. But the women in my life, my mother, she had bottom lines. You cross that, husband, father-in-law, brother, brother-in-law, son, she will tell you to stop right there, red line. Because she had a sense of self-worth, self-respect, and she didn't allow anybody to cross that line. Because if you don't respect yourself, you know, it's like bullies in a, in a school ground. They look for the one who's sitting there worrying that they're going to bully. They get them bully. So women have to carry themselves with dignity, with self-assurance, because then it becomes difficult for people to penetrate your environment. So we need to do the work that needs to be done to get women to be comfortable with being women and be proud of the strength that they bring to the human race. And this has to be done in a systematic way. I'm very concerned and I'm, I'm glad that we have my beloved sister Zanelli here. 
I'm very concerned that women today, young women today, are less assertive than we were in very tough times. When I was in the Black Consciousness Movement, having opened my eyes to not being a non-white, not being a non-European, I said, so why am I supposed to be second class to you, meaning my, my male friends? And that was a little bit of a problem, but it never stopped. Because then I said, you can't divide me between being black and being woman. I am a black woman and proud. And so the same liberation of the mind with regards to the issue of black-white has to apply to the liberation of the mind with regard to women and men. And the way we bring up our sons and our daughters has to be liberatory. You can't then complain that women don't support other, support other women when we are not modeling that, my generation and the generation behind us. And so I believe that we need in this country to go back to basics. We need civic education in our school system, starting with preschool right now. If you go to most sustainable democracies around the world, they have civic education as part and parcel of the curriculum. We have life orientation, but our children, some of them haven't even seen, they don't know what is a constitution. They don't, why are we doing this to our children? And even at university level, I dare say, you need to clean that act, help young people at least to get to grips with what does it mean to be a citizen of a democracy? What are my rights? What are my responsibilities? It pains me that university students can't even have peaceful elections in the SRC. Now, imagine what they will do. They'll make Zimbabwe look like a school picnic, <laughs> right? Because what we are really at risk of here in this country, we are at risk of losing the moral high ground, the moral authority that we have had. In fact, we have already lost it. Sadak people don't care about us anymore. So the AU, we are no longer the moral trendsetter because we have not lived the values that are embedded in our constitution that people admired us for. <coughs> so I believe we have a second chance to go back to basics and restore the promise of that freedom that so many people, including Madiba, who's uh, lying in hospital, he's there because he sacrificed the prime of his life so that you and I can have this freedom that we have. But we are, we are betraying his legacy. When we have school kids being told that 30% is good enough for you to pass between 40%. That even fair would you never have dreamt of. <laughs> it is absolutely shocking. When we say to young men, I mean the level of violence against young men in this traditional initiation school. Why? Because the older men who are in charge are taking out their own incompetence, impotence, and their sense of powerlessness. 
on these people. So this thing is not about women. It's about a society that is wounded, that is scarred. And this is where feminine power comes into it. Because the healing that needs to take place requires men and women to hold hands together. And I'm very pleased to hear about what we are going to do at UJ because I was shocked to hear about that young woman hijacked on campus. That's supposed to be safe. And now, and you say it was a student who did the hijack. Arrest my case. So the, the people who should be coming out of our universities as leaders of this wonderful democracy are completely out of it. That young man just has not benefited probably from proper upbringing, from proper development, personal development in the school system, and now you landed up with someone who's actually a criminal on campus, and he's not alone. And what I do want us, as part of the beauty that is the feminine power in us, to pause and ask the question, what will it take for us as women and men of goodwill to stand up and say enough is enough to gender-based violence that we have? You know, we are the most violent society in terms of the abuse of women and children. Than, I mean, we are in some cases worse than societies at war. And this for me, is because we have not dealt with that anger, that humiliation, that sense of powerlessness that we brought into this democracy. We've got to deal with it. Because when you look at our leaders, many of them are not modeling the kind of engagement of citizens of a constitutional democracy. In fact, it is true that we have some people in parliament, including our president, who don't understand the difference between a parliamentary democracy and a constitutional democracy. It's not their fault, but they should do something about it. Because it's a disaster. But it is also a reflection on you and I as citizens to tolerate that kind of ignorance that is it's not inevitable, but it's a reflection of whether or not there is a political will to build a political culture which puts the citizen at the center, which lives out the values of our constitution, the human dignity, the equality and the freedom that we ought to enjoy. The idea that we can have a uh, publications control board like we had during a public is just shocking. That we and you and I suddenly can't think for ourselves to decide what is good and not good. It's like the secrecy bill, and I can go on. But anyway, let's get back to beauty. <laughs> When I talk about beauty being uh, like a reflection of the light within, what we are seeing is the self-confidence, the self-love, 
the affirmation of the woman who is you that really shines through. And connecting that inner light with the external world is through action. You know, beauty is about, I think Professor Zafter put it differently about lifestyle and how you live. I would extend and say, beautiful people are people who act the values that they hold. If you believe in human dignity, in equality, in freedom as an indivisible uh, 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 attribute, then you are not going to tolerate someone being abused, someone being treated unfairly, someone stealing money, which is supposed to be going to schools, and someone building himself a palace that's supposed with money that's supposed to be building roads. We have to ask ourselves, how does our beauty shine through our actions as citizens, as mothers, as sisters, as daughters, and let's include our brothers. Because it's when we don't reflect our beauty through action that we start having distortions. During the time when we were still non-whites and uh, non-Europeans, <laughs> we had people using skin lightening creams that left them in a spot of water. I worry today when I see young women doing things which are destroying their bodies. And there's nothing wrong with a nice heel. There's something wrong with the heel of the <laughs> You, I'm 65, by the time you get to 45 with that heel, you will be needing a walking stick. Why do that? And we talked about the feminine has got a forward-looking approach to life. But if you do that to your back, because then you are, you are keeping your back, oh, you see now, showing something else. <laughs> inevitably going to be damaged. So I appeal to my beautiful daughters, go easy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to overstate anything. You are beautiful as you are and enjoy the woman in you. But I also want to make one final appeal because I don't want to be between you and lunch. I've already spoken to I want to make one final appeal. Can we have a commitment that this is the last Women's Month that we are going to have where we have this unattended to crisis of gender-based violence without us marching like those women in 1956? <coughs> you know, the difference between a boulder that crashes, which the old women said, or to, you know, uh, of straight up, is that a boulder that is stationary is no threat to anybody. It is not. A boulder that is in motion, that's got energy, that's the one that crashes. Now, we've been boulders. I mean, you look at us. We just sit wherever we are. Now, we are no threat. 
to any of the violence against women and children around us. We need to mobilize. It's in the energy of mobilization that we become the real Mbogotos that are untouchable. Right now, we are just so much so boulders that are lying there. Everybody can climb over them and walk around. Can we make the commitment that we are going to become the boulders that our grandparents, our mothers, our aunts were in 1956? Because we are betraying their legacy by allowing what is going on to continue unchallenged. I was pleased to hear that they're going to revive those special courts. God knows why they abolished them against all the advice by experts. But, you know, better late than never. But we need to mobilize. And that mobilization process has to include paying attention to young people. This poor education and training system is generating the young men who are today raping their grandmothers and their sisters and because what else? There's no purpose in life. They are 30, they still haven't found their first job, and there is no chance of getting a first job because they are becoming less and less employable. So this is about changing our society into a society in which we have an inclusive economy, we've got top-class education, top-class healthcare, and police, who are there as safety and security service and not a force that kills people. It's in our hands. Are we prepared to be the change we want to see in our society? That's the spirit of 1956. It wasn't about Fed Cook and pancakes on the lawns of the Union Building. It was about political change. And democracy is only able to thrive when citizens become watchdogs, when citizens insist on accountability, when citizens insist on adherence to the core values of that democracy. In our case, our core values are human rights and dignity, equality and freedom. Whenever you see it being violated anywhere, you've got to stand up. You have a chance next year of expressing your will. And let's hope we don't end up with the Zanification of South Africa, <laughs> that we will still be able to have a decent, free, and fair election. But your will, your power is in your hands. So stop complaining about what's not happening and start acting. And that's the real beauty. I thank you.